0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 13 verses 13 and 14. This is the word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for his word. And as we come to your word this morning, we do so with humility. We do so understanding that without your word, we would be lost. So please guide us through this entire series, Lord, that we might learn more about who you are, who, how you operate with humanity, the story of redemption, and ultimately the person, the beautiful person and work Of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just pray that your Spirit will come upon us with power this morning for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. The Greek philosopher Aristotle is credited for the saying that personal beauty is a greater recommendation than any letter of reference. And that was 2,400 years ago, long before Instagram long before television or even photography. Today, outward appearance occupies a far greater space in our culture than it did then. Even though we frequently say you cannot judge a book by its cover, it is in the very nature of humanity to do so. We instantly make judgments and appraisals and evaluations based on what we can see with our eyes. It is indeed a weakness of humanity To be swayed by outward appearances. Paul Evans notes that study after study demonstrates that attractive people get more callbacks on job applications, are more likely to be promoted, and are consistently paid more than less attractive workers, despite having equal training, performance, and competence. In the secular world, influential sellers and marketers often tend to do much better when they're outwardly impressive, despite anything about their character. And unfortunately, the church is not immune to this phenomenon. We can and do assume the world's way of evaluating people. But today we will see that outward appearances do not factor into the way God evaluates. He looks at the heart. Today, as Ben mentioned, we're starting a new series on the life of David, the shepherd who would be king, the one of whom the Lord said was a man after God's own heart, the young man from Bethlehem chosen by God to be the monarch of his united kingdom. David was a man of great passion And great complexity, writing deep and rich psalms and songs and music to and for his Lord, yet also a man who fell into the worst kinds of sin, and yet by his repentance was restored to the Lord, but he had an inability to escape the effects of his sin, which continued to plague him through the latter part of his life. Reminding us that passion and gifting are no substitute for obedience. David was also the recipient of a special covenant from the Lord, one that promised a special descendant of his would be on the throne in an everlasting kingdom. This series on David's life will take us right up to the Christmas season where we will celebrate the birth of this special descendant, the Messiah the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that time, we plan to begin a year-long series in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's where we're headed, if the Lord wills. And today is our first message in this series about the life of David. And you can follow along with the outline in your bulletin. Before we consider David, we need to consider the immediate background and Israel's first king, Saul. Saul. Before Saul, God ruled his people directly through the priests and the prophets and deliverers or judges, but Israel wanted to be like the other nations who all had kings. Saul was sort of the people's king, physically and outwardly impressive, a head taller than other men, one who looked the part, he looked the part of God's warrior and leader and Saul was anointed by the prophet Samuel. Ultimately, however, as, as Shay read for us this morning, Saul was not obedient to the Lord. He was cavalier with the Lord's commandments. He thought he knew better. And this whole concept of a human regent or king ruling people on God's behalf, that concept doesn't work if the king does not recognize God as the ultimate authority. If the king thinks he can do whatever he wants or that he knows better than God or he knows better than God's prophet, the whole system breaks down. And this is the unfortunate pattern Saul had demonstrated. He didn't obey the Lord. He didn't listen to Samuel. He did not repent. And consequently, God rejected Saul as king. Now, at this point in the story... Chapter 16, if you're not there, please turn there. At this point in the story, Samuel, the prophet, is still devastated by Saul's disobedience and what Saul's failure means now for Israel, God's people. Let's read now. Please follow along in your own Bibles, number one in your outline. I'll read from verse 1 through verse 5. "'The Lord said to Samuel, "'How long will you grieve over Saul, "'since I have rejected him from being king over Israel?' Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Remember that Samuel devoted most of his life to Saul as king, and he's grieving for Saul and the effects of his sin. And now in one sense, blessed are those who mourn, right? I mean, Saul started out so well, but ultimately was unrepentant. And this was devastating for Israel. Now in turmoil, conflict, division, because the wake of destruction from someone's sin grows in proportion to the scope of their leadership, doesn't it? When a husband or father sin and continue in unrepentance, it has disastrous effects for the entire family, often for generations. When a pastor or church leader does not repent, even more people can be impacted. When the leader of God's entire people, the king of Israel, is unrepentant, the entire nation is impacted, and that's what's happened. So Samuel's heart is right to mourn, but... As Ecclesiastes tells us, there's a time to mourn for a season. And God tells Samuel that season of mourning for Saul is over. It's time to act. God's going to provide another king. Now, this is complicated for Samuel. Okay, this, is, uh, this isn't a democracy. This isn't a representative government with limited powers and checks and balances. This is a monarchy with unilateral power from one person. Saul's still reigning as king, and reigning kings don't take too kindly to people searching for their replacement. Furthermore, Saul has a temper. He may very well try to kill Samuel if he sniffs this out. Politically, this would be treason to anoint another king. So you can understand why Samuel would be concerned about this plan. He asked the Lord, verse 2, How can I go? Saul will kill me if he hears about it. Now, the Lord's response to Samuel's fear is interesting, I think. He doesn't answer the question about Saul, this threat, does he? He just tells him what to do. Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And that's what Samuel does. In simple obedience, he does what the Lord's Lord commands at great risk to his life. Now, isn't this just like the Lord? I mean, in our own lives, there, there are so many times in our lives when we have legitimate concerns, legitimate fears, and anxieties. What if this happens? What if that happens? And I don't know about you, but the Lord never answers those specific questions, does he? He just tells us to be obedient and to trust him. And and that's what Samuel does. Now, when Samuel gets to Bethlehem, as instructed, the people freak out. Let's look at verse four. The elders of the city came to meet him and they were trembling. Now, it's not immediately clear here why they're afraid, but let's remember a couple of things. The last thing Samuel did at the end of the previous chapter, was slaughter the Amalekite king. It says, Samuel hacked him to pieces with the sword before the Lord. <laughs> this is not someone you mess around with. They also know the situation between Samuel and Saul, so this is more than a little intimidating, and they have a lot of respect for Samuel, probably rightfully afraid of him. They ask him if he comes in peace. Is this a disciplinary Visit? Is judgment coming to us? I mean, I see you have a heifer for a sacrifice. Is this some kind of legal action here? They rightfully feared Samuel as the Lord's prophet, God's spokesperson. This is contrasted to how Saul had not feared Samuel. Earlier, Saul had disobeyed the Lord regarding the sacrifice of sheep and cattle flagrant disobedience to Samuel's very explicit directions. Saul brazenly confronts the Lord's prophet Samuel, thinking he knows better. Contrast that to the elders of Bethlehem who rightfully fear the Lord's prophet. As one commentator says, the author shows us that the new king comes from a town where people give the Lord's prophet the respect he is due. Samuel assures them that he does come in peace and that he has a sacrifice to the Lord, which is part of the reason he's come. So God provides Samuel a legitimate reason to be there, yet not draw attention to the ultimate purpose of his visit. Number two in your outline. Let's read together in your own Bibles. I'll read through verse 13. I'll start back in verse 1, though. Second part of verse 1. He says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Skipping down to the last part of verse five. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? He said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, in verse 1, we see a couple of subtle contrasts between God's choice of Saul versus his choice of David. First, the circumstances of Saul's selection. Back in chapter 8, when the Lord instructs Samuel concerning Saul, he says, make them a king. He says, listen to them, listen to the people who are clamoring for a king. Listen to them, God says, give them a king. So Saul was the people's king. Here in contrast, about David, the Lord says, I have provided for myself a king. Saul was the people's king, David would be God's king. The second contrast is the instrument of the anointing. Back when Saul was anointed, Samuel used a flask of oil. Here, for David, Samuel is instructed to use a horn of oil. The horn was a symbol of power. In this case, it was a hollowed out animal horn filled with oil. So even the instrument God instructs to be used for the anointing of the king, David is shown to be greater than Saul. Now let's consider this Jesse from Bethlehem. He was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. He was a descendant of Judah and Tamar. Judah, of course, the son of Jacob or Israel. Judah received that significant promise, if you remember from the Joseph series, on his father's deathbed that kings would come from his tribe. And now we start to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. Arnold notes that from this time forward in the Scriptures, the name Jesse... The town of Bethlehem and the tribe of Judah will always be linked to Israel's Messiah. Now the second part of verse five, Samuel blessed Jesse and invited them to the sacrifice. This is sort of a summary statement of the next eight verses. It's a separate meeting here from the townspeople. So only Jesse's family is here for this part. And Jesse's sons appear before Samuel one by one, almost like the NFL combine where... Each man sort of looked over and sized up. So Eliab comes in first. Samuel thinks, hey, this guy's just like Saul. He's a head taller. He looks the part. He looks impressive, looks like a leader, looks like a king. Surely this is Saul's replacement. But the Lord says to Samuel, no, do not look at his appearance or his height. This is not the king. I've rejected him. I look at the heart. In the scriptures, the heart is the center of the entire person, the center of your desires. Okay? What you care about, what drives your will, your emotion, what you think and what you do, it's all driven by the heart. Now, just an important distinction. Eliab is not rejected because he's good-looking. We see, we see later David is good-looking too. Okay? Impressive outward appearance is not a disqualifier. It's just that it's not relevant to God. What's relevant to God is the heart. The point is not that God only chooses ugly people. The point is that outward appearances do not factor into his evaluation. Now, in verse eight, Abinadab passes before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. It's unclear in the Hebrew Who's speaking here, the, the Lord or Samuel? Some scholars think this ambiguity is intentional to ratchet up the drama. The suspense is building. We have to remember, when we're reading narrative like this, and remember this as we go through the whole series, the author uses literary devices to emphasize things, to increase suspense, to build tension. They're very careful in the way the story's told. When we watch movies today, we're deeply affected, whether you realize it or not, we're deeply affected by the soundtrack and the camera work, suspenseful music, the way the scene is shot, the angles, the images. These are all tools directors have at their disposal to increase tension and build the drama. Obviously, Hebrew Hebrew writers didn't have any of these things so the way they held they build the tension the way they make emphasis is by the way they told the story note the repetition Eliab, Abinadab, Shema they all pass by at Jesse's instruction one by one then in verse 10 and 11 we see a repetition Samuel said to Jesse Samuel said to Jesse Samuel said to Jesse clearly significant the Lord has not chosen these are all your sons here Now, the brothers may have marveled at Samuel's prophetic insight. Like, how how could he know we have another brother? But Samuel's just being logical. If God has not chosen any of these, there must be another son. Send and get him. We're not going to sit down until he gets here. Jesse didn't even invite David. Perhaps he was too young. So the others presenting themselves, putting their best foot forward... And David comes in smelling like a sheep. The author's really emphasizing that David is the least likely. Okay? He's so out of the picture, Jesse didn't even think to invite him. We don't even know his name. This is another literary device to build the drama. David is the focus of the entire story, yet his name is not even mentioned until all the way into verse 13. Now, the author doesn't give us a biographical sketch of David. That's not his focus. His focus is God's sovereign choice and this surprise choice from God. And that's not abnormal, is it? I mean, if we've been paying attention from Genesis onward, this is very common throughout redemptive history, isn't it? Rebekah's sons, Esau and Jacob, the elder shall serve the younger. Rachel's sons, Joseph, not Reuben, was given the rights of the firstborn. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, remember? Moses, Aaron, later Solomon, Adonijah. It's common for God to make a choice contrary to cultural expectations. So Samuel anoints David, and it's it's very possible that no one besides Samuel knows what this is for or what's going on. His two public anointings come much later. Samuel doesn't appear to tell them what's going on, and it doesn't say, but we know for certain that Samuel knows. And we as the reader know that this moment right here is a major turning point in the history of Israel. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So the man after God's own heart is now filled with the Holy Spirit. As Tony Evans says this is a great combination for a king or any kingdom citizen to be after God's own heart and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a man, that's a woman, that's hard to stop doing great things for God. And it's not coincidental that immediately after we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, very next verse we read, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That brings us to number three in your outline. Please read with me in your own Bibles, starting in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep, And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. He became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand and so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Okay, really interesting passage to close out the chapter. A number of questions surface as we consider it. First, as it relates to the Spirit of the Lord, which came upon David but departed from Saul, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit operated somewhat differently in the Old, in the Old Testament. This is not like the Spirit promised in the New Covenant, okay, which came upon the believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and subsequently indwells every believer since then. Okay? In Old Testament times, the Spirit would come upon people to empower them for some kind of service to the Lord. It could be artistic, it could be building, but, but especially service in military or leadership capacity. And then the Spirit might depart from them, as was the case here with Saul. You remember, remember Samson. Yeah, the Spirit comes upon him, remember, with great power and then departs after the Delilah incident. So with King Saul, the Spirit departs from him and rests on David. This is why in Psalm 51, after David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, he pleads with the Lord after he's repentant. He pleads with the Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, in other words, don't do to me what you did with Saul as king. And in his repentance, the Lord did not do that. So from this point on, Saul tries to reign in the flesh without the power of the spirit. Okay? And God's going to undermine that. And that's to make matters worse. And this leads to the second question. Not only does the Lord take his spirit away from Saul, but he sends him what the ESV calls a harmful spirit to torment him. What's this about? best description I ran across was a supernatural misery. Once God rejects him as king, God undermines Saul's effectiveness. This this evil spirit, a harmful spirit, isn't necessarily inherently evil, but the effects are really bad for Saul. Daniel Bloch says it this way, a bad spirit of God is bad because the effects are negative and destructive for the prophet. I'm, I'm sorry, for the object. So, This spear is harmful to the recipient, in this case, Saul. We also have to remember that God in his sovereignty sometimes uses evil agents to accomplish his purposes. We see this in the judgment upon Israel and Judah, which was prophesied in Amos that we just went through. He uses wicked nations, evil nations, to do his will, to take them into exile. Even with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians Remember, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh as a messenger of Satan, okay, to harass him. And the Lord uses it to keep him from being conceited. Now, unlike the apostle, in this case, Saul's disobedience is what led to his torment. So he's tormented by this spirit. Saul's servants say, hey, let's find someone who can play the lyre. This is a stringed instrument like a harp. And his music will be your medication against this spirit. They believe music had this kind of power. And to some degree, we can understand this. The right song at the right time can be powerful and therapeutic. So Saul agrees. Yeah, go find someone who can play well. Then in an amazing coincidence, which is what we might say if we didn't know God's absolute sovereignty, one of the servants says, hey, I know someone, a son of Jesse in Bethlehem. We're not told how we knew about David, but it's clear to the reader, the Lord is providentially placing David in the royal court. Now listen to what the servant says about David in verse 18. Hard to imagine a stronger recommendation than this. He's skillful at playing the liar. He's a man of valor, a man of war. He's a good speaker. He's eloquent. He's got a good presence. He's a good guy. And here's the clincher. The Lord is with him. That's quite a resume. Saul says, that's my guy. Send messengers to this Jesse and have him send this son of his with the sheep, this David. So David comes and plays his music for him and Saul loves David. This is important. He's helplessly tormented without David's soothing music. Whenever David plays for him, the harmful spirit subsides. So note that David enters the king's court, not as king, but as a servant of the king. And he becomes one of Saul's armor bearers. But it's interesting, isn't it, that David is chosen to enter the king's court not on the basis of his military or leadership skill, but his musical ability, which is well documented throughout the scriptures, isn't it? He was very gifted in writing and performing music. About half of the psalms were written by David. Chronicles presents him as the founder of temple worship music. Amos, which we just studied, called David an inventor of music, which means he was an improviser. He came, made up new melodies. He may also have been a singer. Now, there's a lot we're not told in this story, but... It seems doubtful David had any idea what the Lord was doing here. I mean, it might have been like Joseph, right? He's anointed by Samuel. He's got this musical gift that gets the attention of King Saul. He's brought into the royal court to use his gifts for the king. How this plays out, who knows? But clearly he trusted the Lord, and the Lord was with him. Now, the end of the chapter sets the reader up For the tension that will begin to build between Saul and David. In time here, pretty quickly, Saul will begin to see David as a significant threat. And Saul will treat him very unfairly. So the author is showing us up front, not only has God chosen David, but in this sense, David is also chosen by Saul. Fascinating. Even Saul here is testifying to David's character. And that becomes important later because in time, David would no doubt be unfairly rumored about. Propaganda, this, that he was a conniving, deceptive, power-hungry, stealer of Saul's throne. So we'd see the narrator go to great lengths to show us that's not the case. David was a humble shepherd, not even invited to the meeting with Samuel, chosen by God. Even Samuel would have chosen someone else. And in a sense, he's recognized even by Saul as indispensable. He humbly serves as this harpist in the royal court, even though he's already been anointed. And he never once tries to speed up the process. We'll see this. He never once tries to speed up the process of removing Saul. He never tries to bring Saul down to put himself up. He trusts the Lord's timing and even defends Saul when the reader has a hard time understanding. Now let me just mention one more insight that I give full credit to Dale Ralph Davis, an outstanding commentator, before we turn our attention to application. Note that this, looking at the arc of the story, note that the spirit comes on David, and pretty quickly the trouble begins. Fights with lions and bears will seem dull compared to the conflict and drama which will ensue. He'll be hunted by Saul in a few chapters throughout the rest of the book. That's what happens after the Holy Spirit comes on him to anoint him. Think of Jesus. The Spirit comes upon him at his baptism. Next scene, wilderness, testing, Satan. Welcome to the anointing. As Davis says, the wilderness experience and testing is not a sign of the Holy Spirit's absence. It's a sign of the Holy Spirit's presence. So remember that in your own life. Suffering, testing, discipline. Count it all joy, James says, because God is doing this for the sanctification of your heart and your character and your maturity. Like we saw in Hebrews, the Lord's discipline, training, it's not a sign of God's displeasure, as painful as it may be. It's a sign that you are his son, a sign that you are his daughter. Likewise with David. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David as his anointed and very soon the trouble will come. And for the rest of our time together, I just want to lean into some further application of some of the principles we glean from our passage today. Number one, A, trust God's way of evaluating. God can look right into the heart and see the reality of someone's character. We obviously can't do that. We can't see the spiritual qualities and character without getting to know someone. But we can trust what God says is important when it comes to our evaluation. We tend to judge based on visible outward appearance, and that's dangerous. Jesus says in Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'For you are like whitewashed tombs. "'Outwardly they appear beautiful.'" but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. He says in John 7, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment, implying that the right kind of judgment, the right kind of evaluation, is not by appearances, which is what we tend to do. I think we see this in much of the megachurch movement. Nothing inherently wrong with large churches. Okay? Be really clear about that. But they can sometimes be built on one man's personality or giftedness, outward appearances, and not his faithfulness or character. Oz Guinness said this a number of years ago, super prophetic. The faith world of John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, William Wilberforce, Catherine Booth, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, and John Stott is disappearing. In its place, A new evangelicalism is arriving in which therapeutic self-concern overshadows knowing God. Spirituality displaces theology. Marketing triumphs over mission. Opinion polls outweigh reliance on biblical exposition. Concerns for power and relevance are more obvious than concern for piety and faithfulness. Isn't that true? Isn't that prophetic? See all kinds of that today. Jesus makes it clear that outward displays of giftedness, even giftedness in the things of God, can be deceiving. Remember those chilling words from Jesus in Matthew chapter seven. People doing all kinds of impressive outward displays of giftedness, and they're not even believers. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these mighty works? in your name, amazing outward things, impressive things, in Jesus' name. And he says, depart from me, you workers of wickedness. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you that you're claiming. James speaks to this wrong kind of evaluation regarding people coming into the church. We can make an assumption that someone who's well-dressed Put together is better, more valuable to us. And we can treat them differently than someone who's not as impressive outwardly. We've had this discussion as pastor elders how we, we can make this mistake too. Wrongly make assumptions about someone's spiritual maturity based on outward appearances. Someone's put together well, seems to be doing well in a great job, impressive, We can wrongly assume things about their character or that they're spiritually mature when in fact they may be very spiritually immature, have serious defects in their character. And then we can be surprised when spiritual immaturity or ugly behavior surfaces. We can be equally surprised when spiritual maturity comes out of someone you wouldn't expect. All because we can evaluate based on outward appearances. So... While we cannot see the heart like God can, we can learn to appreciate his way of evaluating and not make assumptions. One of the great insights I really appreciated about Nate and Michelle's parenting talks this summer was the importance of friendships and what they indicate about someone's character. When you think about looking for a spouse, for instance, entering into a relationship with someone of the opposite sex with that may lead to marriage. A big red flag is when they don't have solid friends. They just want to be isolated with you all the time. Don't really have other friendships that have developed. It indicates something about their heart, and it's not good. Because the nature of true life-on-life friendships is it inherently sanctifies our heart, builds our character. A person with many good friends has had to work through issues with them. That's the nature of it. Conflict resolution, which is perhaps the number one skill needed in marriage. Healthy management of conflict. Being confronted by someone close to you about something you did or are doing and working through that in a healthy, godly way. It involves humility, repentance, patience, asking for and receiving forgiveness. These are essential heart issues. That make a relationship work. That's the kind of spouse you want, not someone who has never demonstrated those things, or isn't currently demonstrating those things in friendships, who has always ended friendships, kept their distance from people, short-circuiting their maturity, because they can never work through those things. Now they want to be isolated with you. Oh. No. That indicates a heart which, at best is immature. Worse someone to be avoided at all costs. So, again, while we cannot see the heart like God can, we can evaluate on what is important to him. Someone who has good friends, solid life-on-life friends, not Facebook friends or superficial friends, but genuine friends they spend time with and do life with, by the very nature of those relationships, they've worked through things in healthy ways, and that's a significant indicator of a heart that's maturing well. As it relates to parenting, for those of us with young kids, are you focused on their heart? Or like Eliab or Saul, are you focused on the fact that they could look the part, that they might look like a good Christian? How are you evaluating them? Are you concerned about their hearts or more concerned about outward appearances, like performance, how they behave in church or their grades? As someone has said, are you preparing them for Harvard or are you preparing them for Judgment Day? Do you use your positive reinforcement and encouragement to them on heart issues or only on outward performance in academics or sports or some other kind of performance? Do they see your pleasure in things that make you look good as a parent or things the Lord desires for their character, which no one might see immediately. Which of these endings to this statement are your kids more likely to hear from you? After you say, I'm so proud of you because you got an A on that paper, you went three for three with two RBIs, or you showed such patience with your little sister there. You studied your Bible without being told to do so. You are so kind to that boy who hasn't been very nice to you. I'm proud of you. Are we concerned? If we're concerned about God's way of evaluating, we need to reflect that in our priorities and how we reinforce demonstrations of a heart that's being sanctified and built by the Lord himself. Finally this morning, come to the greater David for life. As we will see throughout this series, David is what is called a type of Christ, meaning there are characteristics, uh, events in his life which foreshadow and reach their ultimate fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. David was the anointed one. Jesus is called the Messiah or the Christ, which means the anointed one. Like David, he too was rejected by men but chosen by God. The prophet Isaiah writes this about this rejected suffering servant who was to come 700 years later. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. We see this fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. His life begins with suspect circumstances surrounding his birth. He was called the son of Mary by the people in Mark 6, which, while true, was incredibly offensive in that culture because the identity of his father was so uncertain to put it mildly. When Jesus was teaching, they were astonished. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. He's just one of us. He's not impressive. Reject it. He's having too much fun. He's hanging around with the wrong people, Matthew 11. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, rejected. And he's not from the right place, John 7. How can the Christ come from Galilee, rejected? And on the cross, Matthew 27, he saved others. He cannot save himself. The king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, rejected by men. All kinds of outward appearances leading to his rejection. But, Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected became the head and the cornerstone. 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Living stones. Do you want to be alive? I mean really alive. Eternal life that begins now into his everlasting kingdom. The life you were created to have. You need to come to this living stone. You need to become to this this greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one who was rejected by men, but even that was all part of God's plan that he would die on a cross for our sins as our substitute and be raised to life from the dead also as our substitute that we might live in him. Believe on him. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will have eternal life. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for this series. We're grateful for the life of David, even the evil things that he did, which will come later. We can learn something about you and about ourselves and about your redemption. We're so thankful. Lord, let us evaluate and judge rightly based on your criteria. Let us develop our character and the character of others by the Holy Spirit in the things that you think are important in the heart and not what other people see, not things that make us look good, but genuine character from the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for those here who are listening who do not know you. May may you make them born again today. May they see themselves as the insufficiency that we all are. That we need you. We need your righteousness, Lord Jesus. May they bend the knee and give themselves to you fully. May they turn from their sin, their self-sufficiency, and fall completely into your arms for salvation. That you may be glorified forever and ever. Amen.